providing real solutions for real industry challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, the talk of the title industry. Justin Ailes, it is so good to have you here and taking some time out for us at FNF Unplugged. And if I may add, perfect timing. Thanks, Linda. What's that line? May you live in interesting times, right? That old proverb. Here we are together. Exactly. And and we worked together while you were the director of government affairs at the American Land Title Association. However, you are now at uh, the CRE Finance Council. Tell us about this transition and what CRE is all about. Yeah, CREFC, or the Commercial Real Estate Finance Council, is a trade association that represents the $4.4 trillion commercial and multifamily real estate market. These are the finance side of commercial real estate. So they're not the owners or operators. They're not the equity owners. It's, it's really just about commercial real estate debt and how, that, um, how commercial real estate ownership is financed through debt. It's a pretty large organization. There are more than 300 member companies and 11,000 individuals. There are a number of kind of aspects of the commercial real estate finance industry that I think most people don't appreciate or realize how kind of large or complex it is. So it can range from those that are portfolio lenders. So think about uh, a bank, whether it's a community bank or a, a national money center bank. Life insurance companies, those that lend to multifamily markets, but also commercial mortgage-backed securities, not just the lenders and issuers of those, but also the loan and bond investors like money managers, insurance companies can invest in CMBS loans as well, pension funds, government funds. We represent loan servicers of commercial real estate loans, rating agencies, accounting firms. Everyone else represents law firms, and and we do as well. But uh, there are a lot of service providers that are a part of the CRE and the CRE finance industry. Sounds like there's a lot of different stakeholders, and I'm sure the relationships are so different. How does that play into the markets that they're a part of? Well, it's certainly multi-dynamic, let's say that, right? I think one of the things that we think about in the title insurance industry, you oftentimes hear about people talk about agents versus underwriters. Here, there are seven, at least seven different kinds of stakeholder groups that all have kind of different views and positions. And then we've got pretty complicated borrower situations. So a lot of times, you know, in residential real estate, you think about consumers and consumer lending and all of the service providers that are needed to comply with consumer lending. In in commercial real estate, you know, we have a very different type of borrower. So the people that we lend to include those who own office buildings, uh, industrial complexes, multifamily housing, retail, uh, hotels, and other types of mixed-use commercial and multifamily real estate. So it's it's pretty dynamic. Well, and right now, some of those stakeholders and market areas are suffering. What have you seen in 2020 that kind of was gut-wrenching to you in the commercial market? I think we all know that we don't go to the movies anymore. We probably still go to the grocery store, but we certainly don't go to the mall as much as we may be used to. I don't know about you, Linda. I had just a handful of hotel nights in 2020. 
And in the first quarter was all my business travel. But, you know, from the second and third and fourth quarters, if I had any hotel nights, that was just, you know, on leisure and very different than a, a normal kind of hotel night. So you look at that type of distress, the delinquency and special servicing rate for uh, commercial mortgage-backed securities jumped from almost near record lows to peak up around 10% in 2020. And, and now they're fortunately coming off those peaks. Justin, you're definitely right. On March 11th, 2020, that was my last flight back into Chicago. So I'm going on almost a year with no commercial flights, no commercial hotels. If I went anywhere, it was via car, didn't stay anywhere. And you're right. It's, you know, hotels, gyms, movie theaters, they've all been greatly affected. Now, we usually don't try to date these podcasts, but we just can't help it this time around. So I'm going to have to ask you the, the inevitable question, but... What changes do you see as a result of this new Biden administration? And I know that's a that's a pretty broad question. We can get into the specifics, but right off the top of your head, what do you see coming in 2021 because of new leaders in the White House? There's a couple of things in that, Linda. I think people, first off, let's talk about tone. We have a much, much more calm, rational, predictable kind of tone, I think, in the White House, not just from the Oval Office uh, itself, but also the staff, the people that are up there as spokespeople. And I think the tone is really important. And you realize as a, not just as a, a citizen, as an American, how important that is, but you begin to realize it when you move to policy as well. You know, policy and, and for the business uh, economy to uh, thrive, you're really looking for certainty. And so uh, the idea of no surprises is really important. The idea of uh, not having to monitor our Twitter accounts for surprises, I think, is, is the way things ought to be. And so it's that type of tone that's important. But the policy becomes more predictable as well. You know, I think something that I learned recently about what to expect in the Biden administration, I think, is, is important to realize is the fear of tax increases may not be as imminent as people thought they would be. Janet Yellen, who is the incoming new Treasury Secretary, said in her confirmation hearings that, you know, tax increases during the pandemic are not the right move to make. And so I think that was really reassuring for a lot of people. You also see in the Biden administration a pretty broad, strong, you know, kind of wide ranging and inclusive view of what COVID relief means. So everyone knows that, you know, COVID is job number one and pandemic is, is job number one to get the economy back going. But you, you see the argument that uh, the administration is making to do things such as provide uh, more support for childcare as inclusive of pandemic recovery or the minimum wage, increasing that to $15 across the board, across the country. They're really in some ways, either being creative or being uh, thoughtful about how many different components of public policy are impacted by pandemic relief. Now, the Trump CFPB and DOJ were surprisingly active in regard to uh, fair housing and fair lending endorsements. How much more active do you see a Biden administration in these areas? 
Well, Linda, one of the things that sticks out to me the most is when we were working on kind of the, the, the post-global financial crisis and the Dodd-Frank Act. And when the Dodd-Frank Act was moving through Congress, the CFPB had not yet been set up, but there was a treasury official named Michael Barr. And he was among the most progressive, least interested in hearing from the business community about what needed to be done to get the economy and the residential housing markets back on track. He's now been suggested as a leader in the Biden administration as the, the lead bank regulator, the office of the comptroller of the currency. And now you have progressive groups pushing back against him. So the idea that people who were 10 years ago viewed as really progressive are now not progressive enough, I think goes to show you how you need to suspend your imagination a little bit and consider what are the possibilities of where CFPB or others could go even further than they did under the Dodd-Frank Act. Now, I don't think that means we're going to see another Dodd-Frank Act necessarily, but it does show you how many people view there as unfinished business to be done at the regulators as they look at sectors of the economy or business practices. How do you see the acting director and the nominee for director taking us in different directions? I know Elizabeth Warren is very excited. (laughs) Well, I think she is for sure. But uh, there are a lot more people that are in Congress that are really passionate alongside Elizabeth Warren. So what I think is more interesting is look at where uh, uh, Senate Banking Committee Chairman Sherrod Brown could really push the conversation. Now you have an ally of Maxine Waters, who chairs the House Financial Services Committee. Sherrod Brown is now her partner in crime in the Senate Banking Committee. It's a totally different dynamic than what we've had the last two years, and certainly in the last four years in the Trump administration. So uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what the agendas are going to be from the CFPB. I'll be paying attention to what are the areas of unfinished business that they think they really need to focus on. And I don't know that there's been a whole lot of of, um, kind of publicly known supervision around TRID or certainly enforcement actions around TRID. So things like that, I think, will be interesting to see how big of a a role do those play in the incoming director's priorities. Yeah, I'll be watching it and listening, too, because when we were rolling out TRID to through our industry and through our agents, there was always that fear of enforcement. And we didn't see any of that the past few years. That's right. I mean, there was, you know, uh, thinking back to that time, we did a whole lot in terms of training and regulatory compliance, but nobody really saw the um, the hammer fall uh, in terms of enforcement yet. So it'll be curious to see how that plays out. Agreed. Where do you see government-sponsored enterprises reform? And is there really such a thing as common sense reform? That's a great question, Linda. I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that yet. We just had the Federal Housing Finance Agency Director, Dr. Mark Calabria, join us for a Craftsy conference. And we had the opportunity to ask him, you know, what does this look like going forward I think it really does remain to be seen. The thing that I thought was really interesting, an idea that he may have talked about before that others have noticed, but this was kind of a new concept to me, 
He said, you know, think of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as publicly chartered, privately owned businesses. They're no different than a bank, which is a publicly chartered, privately owned business that is responsible to its shareholders, that has a public mission, but private accountability in terms of a board and and investors and, and the like. And I thought the concept of that was really interesting because we have really thought of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac as as unique, different things in our structure that don't really have a box that they fit in. But I think Dr. Calabria showed how, well, they do fit into a box. It's not the one you would have thought of, but they do work in that box. So I'm not optimistic that we will see legislative GSE reform in the next couple of years, but, you know, I've been fooled plenty of times and I'm sure it'll, (laughs) I'm sure the fooling hasn't stopped. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the conservatorship uh, happens or doesn't happen. Now, I've seen some industry chatter about how Biden's administration will face an array of difficult decisions on financial policy, including what kind of fiscal stimulus we should expect. What do you see coming down the road and how will CREFC assist with that conversation? So Crefty has been focused primarily on getting relief to borrowers. So those hotel owners, those retail owners who are working with either their tenants or their operators to uh, to just try to keep, keep their businesses above water. We're going to continue to do that and to focus on what are the best ways to deliver relief. Things like uh, rental assistance that's better than an eviction or foreclosure moratorium at making sure that um, the payment chain can stay there. We're also paying a lot of attention to individual stimulus. There's been talk of building on what Congress passed in December 2020. They had individual $600 stimulus payments to people, and there's been talk, and and President Biden has proposed another $1,400 on top of that. But there is a lot of pushback that's coming from bipartisan members of the Senate. There is a um, club, a new club in the Senate called the uh, the Senate Sweet 16, which is eight Republicans, eight Democrats that work together and seem to be the impetus behind the next kind of round of relief that could come through. That $1.9 trillion that, uh, that Biden proposed, I don't think anybody thinks it's going to be that big this next go around. Looks like it'll be much more on the the one trillion dollar kind of side and could be even smaller, you know, just money to get the vaccine distributed as job number one. So I think it's too early to say how much the next round of fiscal stimulus is going to be or or all the areas that it's going to look at. But um, we're going to be watching that for sure. Do you see any big changes in FHFA? What we're really looking to do is to see how there's a Supreme Court case that I think the decision on that Supreme Court case will come out in either May or June. That's what we're anticipating. One of the answers in that decision will be whether President Biden can remove Director Calabria before his five-year term is up. So that's really the million-dollar question in terms of what happens next at FHFA. We'll have to see what the Supreme Court rules to see whether Calabria is in for the next three and a half years or whether Biden gets to pick his own person to run that housing agency. Is there anything we can do while we're waiting for all of these changes to happen or possible changes to happen? 
I think the thing that has been really fascinating to me, Linda, is, you know, kind of the, the difference in various industry groups that all serve the commercial real estate or the real estate market generally. Crefsi and Crefsi members have a lot of data and a lot of information about themselves that describe their, their costs, their performance, how well they do. And it strikes me how influential that data that you can use to share your own story really is to being able to persuade both legislators and regulators, those that make policy, to begin to view that policy in the lens you would want them to view it in. You know, data is everything. And so that that is something that's, that's important is to pull together your arguments, pull together your information now on what your performance looks like, what your profitability looks like, what your compliance rate looks like. All of those kinds of uh, data points that you can compile now that demonstrate your performance really do persuade people effectively much better than, uh, you know, anecdotal stories of how you think you're performing. Now, we know that the commercial market in general has had dramatic changes. So I presume commercial financing is changing. How will it change or be reformed so that we can still stimulate commercial growth in a non-commercial growth time period? That is a really great question. And I think we are kind of still living through that right now. I will say that our our members have talked about that they feel a, a pretty positive sentiment for the future of commercial real estate in 2021. The introduction of the COVID vaccine has, has bolstered that feeling. And our members hope that a return to the office is, is coming up in the near term. I think the thing that people realize is that banks in our financial market were in a really healthy position when the pandemic struck. And that's so different than what things were like during the uh, global financial crisis. But obviously, retail and hospitality suffered the most. But our loan servicers are acting very judiciously to prevent foreclosures. And there's a lot less activity in foreclosures than was expected earlier on in COVID. The idea of getting back to the office is really important for young team members. We're thinking about how getting back to the office is good for mentorship and fostering a healthy and collaborative culture. And we're looking at people, some are already talking about getting back to the office in in spring and summer. The fundamentals of commercial real estate, you know, it it is clear that e-commerce has always been there as uh, a challenge to, you know, kind of traditional retail high street real estate space. But that also comes with it a lot of continued demand in the industrial space for warehousing and for last mile kind of delivery. I think it's going to be interesting to see how much the hospitality industry comes back in terms of business travel versus there is going to be a lot of demand, if not for business travel, certainly for recreational for vacations, for getting out of town, for getting out of your house that you've been stuck in for as long as you have. There's been a lot of time to pre-plan your trips, right? That's right. But, you know, as you shift back again to the office market, these are long-term leases. So there's more stability there than I think people appreciate or realize. And it's interesting that you mentioned culture because, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's definitely harder to have or create a virtual culture. 
I mean, just within our own industry, not having trade associations be able to have face-to-face conversations and networking has truly changed some of that conversation and some and restricted some brainstorming we used to have kind of behind the scenes. Yeah, it has also been challenging for us. We have an annual January conference that Craftsy has hosted uh, forever uh, in Miami. It's always in person. People look forward to it. It's when a lot of deal making happens. So we didn't get to do that again uh, this year. But uh, it is interesting that we're seeing a lot more demand where we would have had 600 people in the room during a conference. We had 2,200 in the room for a virtual conference. So the demand is there uh, and how that shakes out in terms of a mix of in-person versus virtual. I think it's going to be interesting. I agree. It's going to be a hybrid for sure. Now, when we talk about multifamily and new construction, so many people really think of that as residential space, but it's not. It's commercial. And I'm a little worried about multifamily and new construction because Multifamily has a lot of mom and pop small business owners, new construction companies. There's a lot of small to medium sized contractors out there that are really being negatively affected by these moratoriums. Where do you see this going? The multifamily segment of commercial real estate is pretty fascinating because you do have, as you say, you've got the residential component to it. So that means you have not only owners, but but tenants who are consumers and individuals. As you look at the delinquency rate of multifamily loans, it's actually pretty low, still way under 5%. And so um, it is interesting that while we do hear headlines about housing affordability, we hear headlines about eviction moratoriums, multifamily is actually much more stable than people realize. But that could be masked a little bit. You may have also heard the statistic that there's something like 70 billion in unpaid rent that is saved up here in the pandemic. And so, you know, how that is all going to be paid back, I think, is going to be uh, going to be interesting. But if you look at, say, life insurance companies, which are historically pretty conservative in their investments, their portfolios overall are 30 percent on multifamily. And the demand we know is going to continue to be there in terms of affordable housing and people needing a, a place to live. So I think uh, multifamily is going to be, I think, more stable than people appreciate over the long term. But there's kind of a, a near and medium term uncertainty that's there, especially as kind of older, naturally occurring affordable housing properties that accommodate lower income tenants we need to keep those those properties online and and continue to uh, to build new ones. And as long as we can get lumber prices to come down, I think new construction will be fine. Hopefully so. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that we spend a lot of our time thinking about in that space is local regulations. We've been supportive of legislation that encourages localities and communities to look at their regulations and and really examine whether they are barriers to affordable housing. And I think that's an uncomfortable conversation for for communities to have. It's it's easier to, to ask for more money than it is to look at kind of the rules that we have in place that can be a barrier to, uh, to development. 
Justin, if you had one area to watch or one organization to follow as a title professional or as a realtor or even someone in the financing area to follow in 2021, what would that be? Oh, wow, Wanda, that's a great question. It has been amazing to me to look at the types of data that the commercial real estate finance industry watches to get a sense of where we are in the pandemic and where we are in the economy. There are some really wonderful hospitality industry analysts that are out there. And I'll have to forward you a report of who they are, Linda, so that you can share it with uh, others on the podcast here. But there are some really great data sources, non-traditional kinds of places, not the stuff that gets play on CNN or even CNBC or Fox Business, but there are some really good data sources out there. I'll send you my favorite. Thank you very much. Justin, thank you so much for joining us at FNF Unplugged. And I would really ask you one more favor. Will you come back in May or June and we can ask the same questions and see how far apart we were in our answers? Absolutely. No, I'd love to do that. Linda, it's so fun to hear your voice and be able to do this podcast with you. I miss being able to do education sessions together with you in person, but uh, hopefully we can get back to that soon too. Thank you, Justin. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or an endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own, and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed herein.